Hi, everyone. Good to be together. Why don't you just, um, did you say hi to the people sitting around you? Why don't you just do it one more time? Stand up. Stand up quickly. Say hi to the people around you. Come on. You know what it means when a preacher does that before they talk, eh? Getting a bit of energy into the room so that you're ready for what's coming. Um, if you, um, you know, when I, I chatted to Luke ages ago and I said, hey Luke, you know, I'm doing week two of this God and Sexuality series, how, you know, how sexuality forms us, what should I read, you know, is there an article, a book or something that I can get into this whole thing? So he sends me this voice note, and it's like, you know, this, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then he starts giggling like only Luke can. And then he says to me, but probably only the best thing you can do to prepare is just start saying masturbation in front of a whole lot of people. <laughs> I haven't really taken him up on offer. I'm saving it all for today. So, hey, guys, masturbation. If you're a teenager sitting with your parents, you know, what can you do? If you're not quite sure what that means, I'd love to explain it to you over a milkshake right after this meeting. I'm going to get straight into today because we are preaching a little bit longer than normal because there's just so much that we, we have to communicate around God and sexuality. So credit to John Tyson, who has really helped us shape this series and message. Um, last week, Luke kicked us off and he looked at, at the two stories that we're living in. The story of our culture and the story of God. And, and we as Christ followers are caught in the middle of these two stories. And Luke landed his talk with this call to repentance. It's the call for us as Christ followers to embrace in our hearts and our minds God's story for our lives, for our sexuality. And to embrace God's story as our own. Like uh, Mikey said, if you missed that, you've got to go get it and listen to it. Truth be told, as Local churches, just speaking about our local churches, we're probably in great danger of being more aligned with our culture than Jesus when it comes to sexuality. Scary to think. Mostly, um, or partly, I think, because we're so immersed in culture's story that it's just normal. Culture's view of sexuality is normal. It's every day. Partly, I think, why we're so immersed in it, because as a local church, we probably haven't done enough to really help and teach Christ followers in this area. I think especially of high schoolers and young adults. I mean, our high schoolers, our teenagers, our young adults are growing up in a very contested space. And, and we have to be a church community. I'm thinking especially of you parents, but all of us who, who, who need to come around our teens, come around our high schoolers and help them in this challenging time. You know, normally what happens is when it comes to sex, the church goes into morality mode, you know, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, watch out for that. The truth is, it's not very compelling. You know, young people, our teenagers, our young, they want to understand why. Why are you telling me not to do this, this, or the next thing? Now, we've also gone the way of just making the whole topic taboo. We don't talk about sex, we squash it, we ignore it. We bury it, any kind of talk, any kind of desire. It's definitely not going to work. Because sexual desire and sexual urges are so powerful in our lives, we're going to need more than just to squash it. We need a much better way. 
We need a biblical and compelling and personally attractive view of sexuality that's so much more beautiful, so much more powerful than our culture's view of sexuality. So that's what I'm trying to do this morning. And I want to do it by, by asking a question that Christ followers should be asking themselves. Who am I becoming by the way I'm using and giving myself to sexuality? Who am I becoming by the way I'm using and giving myself to sexuality? I'm speaking about how sex and sexuality forms us as people. You know, even this basic idea that sex informs or impacts our personhood is one that culture would really struggle with and probably reject. Culture would have you believe that sex is simply body on body. I mean, this is mass, it's atoms, it's cells. It's got nothing to do with who you really are. So what is the big deal? It's got nothing to do with who you're becoming. It's no reflection of your character, of your real personhood. So just forget about it. Well, let's get into it and see. Let me just say, if you're visiting us today, great to have you here. Uh, maybe you're from another church and you've come just to hear about God and sexuality. Brilliant. Uh, maybe you're not yet a Christ follower. Maybe you're just coming to hear what the church has got to say. I just want to say that we, you know, obviously we're a church. I'm a pastor. And what our primary motivation in this series is to, is to teach Christ followers what the Bible has to say about sexuality. That's what we're trying to do here. We know that culture and the Bible or the church, we don't often find each other when it comes to sexuality. We probably find ourselves in different spaces. But my hope today is that you can see that the Bible and God has a very high view of sex and a very high view of our bodies, which is so beautiful and so empowering. Like I said, glad you're here and hope you enjoy it. I want to open our Bibles to Matthew. This is one of Jesus' followers. This is an eyewitness account to the life of Jesus. And here he tells us Jesus touching on sexuality in the kingdom of God. And he says in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I mean, Jesus is not messing around here. This is a radical message in stark contrast to culture's cry that sexuality is no big deal. Clearly, Jesus sees it quite differently. This is a big deal, says Jesus. Your sexuality matters. You know, my first exposure to porn was a magazine that someone brought to Scouts when I was a lot younger. Highly complex, covert smuggling mission to get this magazine into the scout hall. You know, we had to be discreet. Only a few of us could watch at a time while the rest distracted the leaders, you know, doing whatever we were supposed to do. I remember the power of those pictures to produce an excitement and a desire in me. It was wrong. I mean, we knew it was wrong. We were sneaking, but it was exciting. You know, I, I wasn't just a little kid anymore with this abstract idea about sex. I had unknowingly graduated into this place of far stronger sexual urges with increased desire to see more, to know more, to experience more. 
But it wasn't only the impact on me. I remember the power of this experience to form us as a group. Like this group of boys that are now bonded together around this, this sexual experience. You know, the truth is there is so much power in sexuality. So much power exerted on our lives. By design, sex has a disproportionate formative power in who we are and who we are becoming. It's got an incredible impact in shaping us. I think that's why Jesus uses such strong language. That's why his followers, like Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, they use such strong language when talking about sex and sexuality because it is a big deal. Here's Paul. He's writing to Corinth. Coastal city, metropolitan, a lot of cultures, probably a lot like Greater Cape Town. It says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything you say. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitutes? Never! Do you not know that, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. I mean, there is so much we could unpack from this text. I'm just going to pick on verse 18. It's where I want to focus. Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Our sexuality is powerful, so powerful that sexual sin has its own category. Every other sin is outside the body, but sexual sin is different. Listen, every human being, all of us sitting here, have been impacted by sin. We've been distorted in the way we reflect God, in how we relate to others, our relationships, in the way that we're, we're not the people that God intended us to be. That's the impact of sin. But our distorted sexuality has a way of impacting us more or uniquely to other sins. It's got a disproportionate impact. We're embodied people where our bodies and who we are are intrinsically linked and inseparable. Philip Yancey, he says it like this. Sex, out, sex used outside of God's vision has enough combative force to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and almost everything else in its path. We're going to see that our, our sexuality is either forming us increasingly into the image of Christ, which is what we desire as Christ followers, or the way that reviewing and using our sexuality is going to deform us into something else. Let me just say, in a, in a gathering like this, there are going to be people, Christ followers, with very different sexual backgrounds and pasts. I want you to know that today is not about producing guilt and shame. 
It's not what we're trying to do here. It's not about condemnation. It's not about pointing fingers. But what we do want to do is we want to ask, how do we, as Christ followers, regardless of our past, bring our sexuality to the person of Jesus and allow him to shape and form us anew? We want to learn how to bring even our aroused selves to Jesus and ask him to help form and shape us. So if I was to ask you this interesting question, what is your vision for your sexual formation? What is your vision for your personal parents? If you're a parent, young parent, teenagers, this is a great question for you to ask on behalf of your kids. As you parent your kids, do you have a vision for their sexual formation? Are you working towards ensuring that their, that their formation as people includes a godly understanding of sexuality and sex? It's a brilliant question. Maybe, you know, your vision for your sexual formation is fear of sex. Fear of sexual desire. Don't talk about it. It's bad. It must be avoided until marriage. Then go crazy. Don't hold hands. Don't look at someone wrong. You're going to get aroused. And once that happens, it's over. Just kill it. I think the church has probably unhelpfully played that tune. You know, this fear of sexual desire or morality, you know, we think plus the willpower of someone is going to bring holiness. You know, give them enough boundaries and rules, get them so amped that if they don't do this right, they're going to let God down, they're going to disappoint themselves, and then we're going to get the results we want. How's that worked out for us? Not well. It skews a healthy and a helpful view of sexuality. I mean, again, Philip Yancey, he says, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its creator, its inventor. But also, it just doesn't work. You know, surveys reveal time and time again that there is very little difference between the sexual practices of those who, who claim to follow Christ or are in church almost on a weekly basis and those who are outside the church. But there's almost no difference in our behavior around our sexuality. There's a survey done in America by Christian Mingle, big Christian dating app. It says 61% of self-identified Christians, singles, said they were willing to have casual sex without being in love. 61%. Only 23% said, I have to at least be in love. Only 11% said they were waiting to have sex before marriage. Now, my experience as a pastor tells me that this is true. This is what it's like within the local churches at times. I used to have a friend who wasn't a Christian. Uh, we used to work together at this boxing gym I managed back in the day. And he used to always say, hey, you Christians love extreme sports. You just love going right to the edge. You, you know, you, you always love to lie next to or sleep next to or watch a movie and cuddle up to someone and then try your best not to sleep with them. He says, this is so wild. It's crazy. And then he says, and then when you actually do sleep with her and you get engaged sexually, you all get so surprised and so disappointed with yourselves. He says, it's just so weird. And he's just right. It doesn't work. Moral standards plus willpower brings failure. And then we can swing the pendulum right the other way, which just simply says, maybe your vision for your sexuality is just follow your sexual desires. You know, in this view of sexual formation, it's desire plus content is going to bring your freedom. This is culture's predominant vision of sexuality. 
This is what we're growing up in today. If you want it and the other person is willing to give it, then go for it. This is your right. This is your highest expression of what it means to be human and, and what it means to be free and to give expression to who you are. Sex is about pleasure and gratification. That's it. It's got nothing to do with marriage or commitment or family. There's no space, space for morality or ethical distinctions in our sex-positive culture. Don't let the church or God diminish your freedom and your freedom to express yourself, which is your, your highest privilege as a human. You know, sex is an appetite, like any other appetite. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're hungry, you eat. If someone is available and consenting, you have sex. No big deal. Physical desire like any other. Besides, if you're aroused and there's no one who's willing, you've always got porn and masturbation. 50 to 60 years into this experiment, we've got to ask ourselves, what's been the impact is this really producing the freedom and flourishing as it's promised? How is this culture's view of sexuality forming us? Well, the truth is it's creating massive difficulties in our culture for people. It's, it, sex and sexuality, it's a lot more complex and impactful on people's formation and our culture than, than, than people are willing to recognize. As much as people pretend it's fun, People are deeply craving intimacy, which is not easily obtained in a hookup culture, a culture where you, you simply hook up physically or have sex with someone. Miley Cyrus, excuse my French, she says, effing is easy. You can find someone to eff in five seconds. We want to find someone we can talk to and be ourselves with. That's fairly slim pickings. Donna Freitas, a researcher in the States working amongst colleges, she says, students have to work hard to disassociate their feelings from sexual encounters. They find their meaningless sexual encounters disappointing. They feel hurt and lonely. I don't know if you know that Britain has a loneliness minister in government. So does Japan now. In part, because of the breakdown of relationships, the high level of divorce, this lack of intimacy or meaningful connections with other people has led to this pandemic of loneliness in culture. I want to suggest that desire plus consent is actually bringing disillusionment. It's bringing disillusionment. This low view of sex, this low view of sexuality is bringing a proportionate low sense of intimacy, of love, of acceptance. Now, hookup culture, it's producing isolated and alienated adults who come together from time to time to, to find this physiological release, but then by repeatedly breaking up or doing it with multiple people, what happens is if they break up, maybe they've made a connection or actually by never making a connection at all and it's just sex, what happens is that people are failing to learn how to form strong and resilient and committed and fulfilling long-term relationships that we need for marriage, for families to thrive. Turns out that sexuality is far more than an appetite to be met. It's far more than an appetite that has no impact on who we're becoming as individuals and as a culture. So, so if our vision for sexuality isn't, you know, fear of sexuality or follow sexuality, what is it? I want to ask the question, does Jesus have a vision for our sexuality? Does Jesus have a, has a vision for your sexuality? 
He does, and it's called sexual formation. Jesus, he looks beyond what's on the surface so much, and he, and he asks, who are you becoming based on why and what you are doing with your sexuality? I think if you just turn that personally, I think Christ follows, you need to ask yourself, who am I becoming by the way I'm using and giving myself to my own sexuality? Have you ever asked yourself that? Thought about that? Who am I becoming? What kind of person am I becoming? By the way, I'm using and giving myself to my own sexuality. So your sexuality is given to you by God, and it's critical, incredibly powerful in your formation. It's either forming or disforming you in the image of Christ. As Christ fathers, we need to bring our sexuality to Jesus. Say, God, would you, would you form my sexuality? So Paul, he's writing to Christ followers in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. He says, it is, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That is, that you should be coming more and more like Jesus, more and more becoming the, the people that God created us to be, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in, the passionate, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, God, uh, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now remember that, that the Bible understands the power of sex to form us. And so when we see prohibitions in the Bible or what not to do in the Bible, it's not about stifling your fun. Or taking away something that's thrilling. It's, it's about saving you from being deformed into the image and the likeness of this world. Actually, what the message of the Bible is, your, sex, your sexuality is something of great worth. And it deserves to be protected. It is good. It is powerful. But it's also fragile. So look after it. Care for it. The Bible isn't anti-sex, it's pro-body. We have to learn how to control and submit our sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus. So how? I mean, that's the big question. How do we do this? I think our, our new vision for our own sexuality needs to include these four biblical pillars. We need to change the way we view our own sexuality and, and sexuality as a whole. Firstly, the first pillar is, is to realize that our sexuality is designed to remind us of the true story that we actually long for as people. Sex is a signpost. Sex points us to a greater truth, a greater reality about how we were created and what we were created for. In the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve who are naked and unashamed. In our cultural moment, we may get naked, but we're still fighting shame. You know, we might be without our clothes, but we're hiding our emotional vulnerabilities, hiding our hopes, our fears, our true feelings, our desires. In fact, culture will tell you, strongly encourage you, don't bring any of those complexities into sex. Melinda Selmus, an author and researcher, she says, when sex is reduced to an exchange of pleasures, the other person's personality becomes a burden. Don't bring your personality into this. 
But sex by design is pointing us back to God's intention for our lives of how we are designed. It points us back to our true humanity. That sexual desire is a powerful longing pointing to our desire as people to be known and to be known by God in the wake of severed relationships, the impact of the fall. You know, sex it's a, comes from the Latin verb meaning cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite or to restore these severed unions. I mean, we all long to be pursued and wanted. We want to be fully known. We want to be fully loved. We want to be naked and seen as beautiful and desired. That's the longing of our hearts. That's how we have been created to be, to be vulnerable and not rejected. We're not going to find this in a hookup culture. We find this in the gospel. That sex points us to Jesus and the power of the gospel to fulfill our deepest and greatest need of the restoration of a relationship with our creating Father. A God who knows us fully, who knows you fully, every good, bad, and ugly thing about you, and yet He's chosen you even when you are at your worst, that He's pursued you, that He Himself became naked and vulnerable on the cross on your behalf, that He gave Himself to you completely and in full vulnerability unconditionally so that you can experience forgiveness, that you can experience restoration in this most intimate of relationships with your heavenly father, that you can be fully accepted, fully loved, fully cherished by God himself. Sex is a profound reminder and picture of our deep need for intimacy with God to restore this broken relationship. We only do that Find that in the gospel. A second big pillar. What is our view for sexuality, our, our vision? Well, we need to understand that we are holistic people. We need to know that sex is designed for the whole person. It's not just empty body on empty body. Sex is designed to include your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole body, fully given to someone. In all the human experiences, sex is intimacy at its absolute purest. It's the pinnacle of intimacy with another person. I've been speaking about that this morning. You know, when you divorce sex from intimacy, and you just view it as this, you know, pleasure and gratification, all you're really left with is technique and performance. How good am I at this sixth thing? It's all we're left with. Can you imagine what that does to our own anxieties around self-image and worth. Am I good enough at this? Am I pretty enough at this? Will I be accepted at this? There's so many books, manuals, studies designed to increase sexual performance, but it's all doing nothing to meet our fundamental need and desire as people for intimacy and acceptance. So many people describe losing their virginity as so disappointing because it's all about experience, a technique, and when you're a virgin, the technique's not great, but it's got nothing to do with love. It's got nothing to do with true vulnerability. And when you engage in that sexual counter and it lacks those critical elements, it's just so unfulfilling and disappointing, promising so much but delivering so little. 
Here's an excerpt from Nancy Pierce's book, Love Thy Body, which Luke and I both recommend. It says, common phrases for having sex indicate that it is the most you can do sexually. It is going all the way or getting to home plate or sealing the deal. That's why it belongs only in a relationship where you go all the way. On all other levels as well. When you commit to another person legally, economically, socially, spiritually, you should become naked and vulnerable physically. Only when you are ready to become naked and vulnerable with your own self. Okay, third pillar. We need to understand that, that how that sex, uh, how we use sex, how we view our sexuality, that it's tied to our transformation. We need to understand that this is having a radical impact on who you're becoming. It, you know, when you don't simply follow your sexual desires and give in to them, what happens is you need to think about your desires. You need to think about what's happening. And it's such a good thing for us to do that, to examine what's happening in our hearts and in our minds before we just give in to something. Now, here's something we can relate to. If you've got kids, it's an easy relate. Even if you don't have kids, if you're young or, or you're single, you've chosen not to have kids or you can't, this is, this is, you can relate to this because we all know people like this. Parents don't simply let kids follow their every desire. Because if you were to give your kids everything they wanted, they would turn out to be spoiled brats. They would be so, they would be not well-rounded. They would be like deformed. They would be very selfish and self-centered. I mean, we know that about parenting. We know that that's a reality, that as parents we can't do that. But somehow, when it comes to sexuality, our culture is telling us to do exactly that. Like just follow your every sexual desire. And to think that that won't leave us deformed. That won't leave us further from the image and the likeness of Christ. We just all of a sudden have amnesia when it comes to sexuality for something that's true for every other part of life. We need a vision for sexuality that, that forms and conforms with how God created us because it's radically impacting us. And the last pillar is this one. It's a witness to the world. We need to understand that how we view and use our sexuality, it's a witness to the world. Christ forms sexuality. It leads to, to healing and restoration. It's a, it's a place of respect, not commodification and abuse. It's a place of vulnerability. It's a place of grace, of acceptance in a culture that's filled with performance, lies, and deceit. Do you know that there's, there's three major practices? There were three major practices amongst Christ followers that saw the Roman Empire overturned, that, that won the Roman Empire. The first one is the way Christians died. The way they went to their death and the way they treated their enemies was so countercultural, it turned the powerful Roman Empire on its head. The second was their people's radical financial generosity. This had never been seen before amongst a group of people. And thirdly, the faithfulness in their, in their sexuality, which was simply outrageous and countercultural at the time, maybe even more so than for us today. How people used and exercised and thought of their sexuality impacted the world, the Roman Empire, and it will impact our worlds. So those are the pillars of, of, of how, biblical pillars of how we need to start thinking about our sexuality and, and sex, I want to talk about four great challenges to the sexual formation. Four great 
temptations that we're going to experience in this world. The first one is pornography. Pornography. Porn. I want to remind us that as we look at these these temptations, I'm not asking the question, are they right or wrong? I mean, valid questions to be answered another time. My big thought here is, who, am, who are we becoming? Who am I becoming as I embrace and think of my sexuality, how I use my sexuality? So, so statistics tell us that 90% of men are using porn, and the numbers amongst women is rapidly increasing and catching up. Last week, I don't know if you saw it, there was an article in News 24, can, Google it, called South African Children's Porn Addiction Crisis. Here are some excerpts from the finding. It's a study by UNICE's Bureau for Market Research amongst the youth. 35% of children are watching child pornography. 35% violent pornography. 65% watching porn between a man or a woman. These are people with smartphones, with access to data, Wi-Fi. The biggest problem is smartphones and tablets. Most of the children's first exposure to pornography was accidental. Parents put on a movie for the kids, carry on working, a pop-up appears, they click on it, they find themselves on a porn site, and they're intrigued. By the time children leave primary school, 90% of them have been exposed to porn. So by the time they leave school, for five years or a decade, they've immersed themselves in pornography. Can you imagine the formation that's happening there? Rada Mayer, she says that after three decades of work in this field, most of the porn addicts she sees are in grades six and seven. Noting an example that during cricket matches, often while waiting to bat, boys will be watching pornography. This is true of our kids. It's true of us as adults. So true of us. Our kids have 24-7. We have 24 access to porn on any number of devices that are on us right now. You don't need to have a covert smuggling mission to get a magazine into a room. We can all access it at the click of a few buttons. And in the absence of healthy alternatives, with the absence of us helping each other and our children be formed in their sexuality, they're being discipled by pornography. Pornography is teaching them about their sexuality. So how is pornography forming us? How is it shaping its users? Well, it's impacting the story that we're living in. It, it's challenging the way that we think about our lives. Nancy Pierce again, she says, pornography tears apart what it means to be integrated, treating body as an object or instrument for one's own purposes. Oh, that's that, that, that turning into ourselves. It's impacting our relationships. Children who are addicted to porn struggle enormously in their relationships in the future. They have a distorted idea of sex and relationships and cannot maintain a loving relationship between two people. That's from the article. Again, it's true of adults as much as it is of children. Our sexual tastes are impacted with people being less sexually and relationally satisfied. The problem with porn is not that it shows too much of a person, it's that it shows far too little of a person. It's impacting our emotional well-being. Naomi Wolf describes students she interviews at a, at a large university. It says, It became clear that after a decade of having access to the internet, they were intimately familiar with porn. But intimacy and the hearts of the opposite sex were more of an elusive mystery than ever before. We're being robbed of emotional health, the ability to have relationships. 
what is porn doing to how women see themselves and are viewed by others? Here's a quote from the study, again from that book. Girls and young women are under a lot of pressure to give boys and men what they want, to become a real-life embodiment of what the boys have watched in porn, adopting exaggerated roles and behaviors and providing their bodies as mere sex aids. Growing up in today's porn culture, girls can quickly learn that they are service stations for male gratification and pleasure. This is true of our culture. Hey, maybe even us. It's impacting our bodies and our behavior. You know, there's firm data showing that porn is clearly addictive, that it leads to violence, it destroys relationships, it feeds sex trafficking and prostitution, that porn is rewiring our brains. The, the, porn cons- the more por- con- porn consumed, the less the reward centers of our brain are activated because our dopamine levels are being impacted all the time and they're shutting down. So you get the the law of diminishing returns. You need to watch more and more hardcore porn to experience the same thrill, the same arousal, the same pleasure. And impacting our dopamine levels, it means that we're functionally, that, that we have less empathy, less understanding for people over time. People are increasingly objectified in our minds. Our sexuality is radically formed through pornography. It's forming us. We have to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge that porn is radically impacting our lives emotionally, relationally, and even physically. Okay, then there's masturbation. The Bible doesn't speak about this topic directly, but C.S. Lewis does, so let's lean on C.S. Um, I'm going to come back to him. Augustine, the great theologian, he had this definition of sin as love turned in on itself. So he said, we are made to be people who love God and love people, but we have turned that love in on ourselves, and what it produces is ruin. This is understanding of sin. In other words, sin is selfishness. It's self-centered. It's self-serving. It's a curving in of our love and our lives into ourselves. So C.S. Lewis, he writes a letter to a friend. Imagine them sitting, having a coffee. He says, hey, Lewis, what do you think about masturbation? And he writes a little answer. And here we're speaking about men and women. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite, sex, which in lawful lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another. And finally, in children, even grandchildren, and turns it back. It sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep him a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and rarely uniting with the real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among these shadowy brides, he's also adored always, the perfect lover. No demand is made on his uh, unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. And it is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born into, Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. 
And we know the connection between pornography and masturbation is strongly established. Okay, let me, let me speak about the third one. We've got one more after that, and then I'll wrap it up. Dating. Another great temptation that we're going to find as we surrender our sexuality to Jesus and ask him to, to form it. Again, the Bible doesn't speak directly to dating. It's a topic that needs a lot of wisdom. But just so you know, most of human history, marriages were arranged. That's how marriages came about. After that, there came courtship. The word dating only ever first appeared in print in 1914. It's not a long time ago. Fascinating if you think about it, how recent this idea of dating is. So courtship was all about, you know, a man coming before a whole family to be evaluated. Their character, their worth, their ability to provide for someone. It it was a family affair. Dating changed everything. Relationships got removed from the family. They started, it started to revolve around fun and entertaining, getting to know people in unrealistic settings, romantic dinners, not, not really true to life most of the time. Relationships move away from character and friendship to can I have fun and am I being seen with someone? And, and for many people, it's about money. Now, if you think dating was a radical step from courtship, Disaster struck when dating apps were developed and the hookup culture just exploded. People described dating apps as being like Amazon Prime to deliver your hot people. I watched a YouTube clip. You know, you get those clips. I'll give you 10 grand to kiss me, 20 grand to kiss you. Eventually 50 grand. She says, oh, no, I could never kiss you. I'll sleep with you, but I can never kiss you because I'm dating someone. This is hookup culture. Mary Everstadt, again, I'm pastors, so we're leaning on a lot of people doing research and reading. She's commenting on popular magazines, and she says they're filled with a wildly contradictory mix of chatter about how wonderful it is that women are now liberated for sexual fun and how mysteriously impossible it has become to find a good, steady, committed boyfriend at the same time. These things are are fighting each other, cannibalizing each other. It's forming us to hide our true selves in a moment and training us to fail in long-term relationships. You know, the implications of repeatedly hooking up repeatedly, it's, it's breaking a bodily promise that if I give you my body, I'm giving you all of myself. No wonder breakups are so painful. No wonder when a young person breaks up with someone that they've been sexually active with, that it is so painful and so devastating. And, and, and we get cynical. And we set up defense, emotional detachment. You know, it, it's like a defense mechanism. Now, I'm scared you're going to hurt me. I'm scared I'm going to experience this devastating pain again. And so we, we push people away. We protect ourselves. But what happens, though, is over time, that deep attachment becomes more and more difficult to actually ever attain again. And young adults... When they marry, they find it harder to make those lasting, committed relationships. Hookup culture is training us to abandon God's design for us and the true power of sex. You know, I left this out of the earlier meeting, but I'm going to do it now. Modern dating, with the impact of dating apps, it gives us a cultural grid for dating. 
I wonder if you've ever thought about if you're dating, what's your grid for dating? What are you looking for in dating? So culture, this is culture's grid for dating. One, are they hot? Very important. You know, Tinder, it's all about profile pics, bios. You know, you can hear the stats. Um, makeup sales are up, perfume sales are down across the world because it's the pictures, it's the image, it's what's being put out there that are increasingly important and how people are actually making connections. I chatted to someone after the meeting and they said, you know, they asked their, their boy about friendships and dating and he said, oh, it's just so much hard work. It's like people are, are losing the skills and the will to actually build relationships. You can just text them, send a voice note, you know, write a comment on their Facebook page. So the first thing, are they hot? Can I have an exciting time with them? I mean, is it cool to date them? Is it fun? Is it exhilarating? Do I feel good in the moment? And then after hooking up, after giving myself to them sexually, do I think that they're the kind of person I want to have a friendship with? Like, should, I, should we do this again or should we just call it a that? And maybe if you decide that the friendship's worth it, eventually you ask yourself, do I want to spend my life with them? This, this is culture's grid for dating. The way of Jesus is completely opposite. The first thing you ask, and this is based on the different kinds of love in the Bible, in, in the Greek language, is this the kind of person I would be willing to give sacrificial care to? The first thing the Bible speaks about in dating and relationships and romantic relationships is other-centeredness. Is this the kind of person that I would give sacrificial care to? Are we friends, and do we resonate well in major areas of life? This is the biblical view of, of dating. Actually, that friendship and this resonance around generally how we view life. Then can we build a real united vision for the future? Is this the kind of person that we could actually see ourselves and we agree on major things that there's a, there's a future for us here? Not on everything, of course. And then when all this is done, deciding whether you want to commit to them in marriage for the long term, in which you give yourself to them sexually, body, soul, mind. Everything. What is your grid for dating? If you're dating, have you thought about it? Have you thought about what you're looking for, what you're prioritizing, how you're thinking about it, how you're evaluating the people that you're with? So much of who you're becoming is going to be built around this grid if you're a single person in dating. I don't want to talk about whether dating apps are right or wrong. Remember, we, we're speaking about who am I becoming? by the way I view and use my sexuality. Okay, finally, cohabiting. It's becoming an increasing trend amongst Christ followers. You know, I think there's so much relational breakdown, marriages are falling apart, so we've got to take this thing for a test drive. We've got to make sure there's compatibility. Or hey, we're already sleeping together, so we may as well live together. It so economically makes a lot of sense as well. You know, Jonathan Grant speaks about cohabitation as like a subprime commitment. Subprime commitment is when you lend someone money, but they don't really have uh, the ability to pay you back, and there's a high likelihood that they aren't going to pay you back, that it's going to be a loss. He says it's astonishing how this trend is increasing when all the data clearly shows that it's counterproductive. One in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage, and it gets worse and worse the longer you cohabit. There's an increase in the likelihood of divorce. For serial cohabitors, the statistics are even worse because it leads to greater dissatisfaction in marriage and with one person that could never meet all your needs. You know, when we don't follow our, when we don't 
allow Christ, when we don't follow our sexual desires and we instead allow Christ to form our, our sexuality, what we're doing is we're training ourselves for marital faithfulness. When we don't simply follow, when you simply give yourself to your sexual appetites, you're going to struggle when you realize that you can't just turn off the tap when you share a few vows. Training yourself toward marital unfaithfulness. Here's t- let Tim Keller have the final word before I pull the threads together. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily, not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for this person? When someone says, I love you, but let's not ruin it by marriage, what they're saying is, I don't love you enough to close all my options yet. So we live in a sex-positive culture as I pull this together, telling us a, a story different to God's story. And then we have these incredible temptations and realities in our life that are deeply challenging our sexual formation in the way of Christ. But we need to understand that sex and sexuality is an incredibly powerful force in your life, forming who you are becoming. We need a robust view of sexuality. We need to give our kids a robust view of sexuality that doesn't involve fear or follow. We need to bring our sexuality to Jesus, surrender it to him and say, Christ, would you form my sexuality in your way? means we reorder our desires. We rely on the Spirit. We adjust our practices. And so we begin to flourish in a God-ordained sexuality. And it's not external habits that we need to change. We need, we need new hearts, new habits, new perspectives. And we need a new community to live within. We, we as local churches need to become communities that are countercultural in which we can grow up in a healthy, encouraging, sexually, uh, sexual formation space. And guys, this is hard. Individually, this is hard. Because every time you make a choice to honor God, it's suffering. It feels like suffering. It's not just a choice that you make. It's not just an inconvenience or a personal choice. In our culture, when you make a decision to honor Christ with your sexuality, it's going to feel like suffering. It's going to be hard. You know, you're going to look at people, look at your friends, see what they're doing in their relationship, think, oh, that's not a big deal. It doesn't seem to be impacting, impacting that, that much. But as Christ followers, we've got to remember that we are those that seek God's will for our lives before we seek any other pleasure or pursuits. And guys, we need to become that countercultural community where we can live out this vision for sexuality together, encouraged and safe. Maybe the, you can make your way up. You know, you might be thinking, Don, you don't know my story. You might be carrying so much shame, so much guilt, so much failure, so much temptation that you might not believe that Christ can actually redeem your sexuality, that your sexuality is so deformed that there's no hope for you. Now, before you lose hope, I want to remind you of the kind of people that the Bible describes as being saved. It's th- these are people who regularly had sex with temple prostitutes as a normal way of life, not people from the southern suburbs. 
when the Bible speaks about God reaching in and rescuing people, it's not the southern suburb person you're thinking about. God can handle your sexual failure. God can handle your sexual failure when you bring it into the light and you ask him to restore and to bring freedom. Jesus knows how to make beauty out of ashes. Sitting around you are believers who are in the same boat as you or have been in the same boat as you. And as they've surrendered their lives to Jesus, they've experienced that, that renewal, that restoration, that forgiveness. That something new emerges in light of the love of Christ. Let's be those who are freshly offering our sexuality to be formed by Christ. Can I pray for us? Why don't you stand? And then we're going to sing a closing song. Father God, uh, you've heard what's being said in this room this morning. You know what's happening in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we, we freshly as Christ followers just want to say, Lord, we need your help. God, we, we want to freshly surrender our lives and our sexuality to you. I want to say, God, would you, would you help form a new way of thinking, a new way of being, a new way of living? in us God as we look at these great temptations these great attacks on what it means to to be humans created for sex and with sexual drive God that you would protect us that you would nurture us that you would lead us into freedom and fullness of life Amen